And welcome to episode 226 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the objects to observe in the June 2022 night sky. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going under the stars. Well, we're halfway through 2022. Shane, what do you think of that? It's going by far too quick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And part of that is the winter was far too long, I think, for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're just getting into warm weather observing, which is super nice, t-shirt and shorts. Um, but to think that the year is going to be half over, um, yeah, kind of saddens me a little bit, but you know, I'll enjoy the summer and hopefully we have lots of good observing in front of us. Well, I'm looking forward to warmer weather because although we're, we're about halfway through the year, we're just recording this a little bit earlier than halfway through the year. Eight days ago, I woke up to snow in my backyard still. So happy to be out of that six months of snow and, and let us, let us not have snow for another six months, please. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Good stuff. So, uh, before we get going here, maybe we'll just go over some, uh, brief, like kind of easy starting advice for beginners looking to get into, uh, stargazing. So do you have any, uh, stargazing advice for people eager to, to start getting out under the star machine right off the top? Um, I think some of our old standbys uh, carry forward. Um, you, you don't need a, a telescope to enjoy the night sky. In fact, you don't even really need optics to enjoy the night sky. Uh, mm-hmm. Binoculars is, is a great way to start or even just your eyes. Um, a book that we often recommend is uh, Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson. That's also a great uh, starting uh, book to help orient yourself around the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, one thing that you'll find, and we'll probably even talk about it in this podcast, is the sky is divided up into arc seconds, uh, arc minutes, and degrees. And this mm-hmm. is kind of how you tell the distance between different objects. Um, so 60 arc seconds uh, equals one arc minute, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I believe it's 60 arc minutes equal one degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just for some references, then uh, the moon is about a half a degree, um, and the width of your fist held out, you know, as long as you can stretch your arm, uh, the width of your fist is ten degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just some some good sort of landmark or base setting ways to measure the sky. And and the reason I'm mentioning this, and and you know, I think you and I mention it frequently, is this is just super helpful when you're trying yep. to navigate. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, the fist at arm's length, um, like you hold your arm, like you said, out straight as you can and put your fist against the night sky and, and everybody's built to about the same proportion. So that's 10 degrees in the nighttime sky. It gives you a really good, uh, really good reference. And um, yeah, like we always try to encourage people if they have a set of binoculars around to try those in the nighttime sky. In particular, even if you live in a big city, you can point your binoculars at uh, like the partially lit moon, like the moon it's in um, one of its phases not when it's full, but just, just when it's, uh, you know, either coming into full or going out of full around like first or last quarter or something like that. And you can actually see quite a few craters, um, just with your, uh, your little uh, binoculars that you might have around the home. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's amazing how much detail you can see on the moon, even, uh, with a, a, a pair of standard binoculars, it, mm-hmm. it really has a lot of detail that it reveals with any kind of optic. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, as well, like looking at, at planet pairings, I was giving a talk last night uh, in the Grasslands National Park 
And um, an individual there uh, had asked me, um, you know, what would be what would be good to see uh, Jupiter and Mars in the morning in the morning sky uh, as we have right now. And uh, and they were holding a pair of binoculars. So I said, actually, the binoculars you're holding would be perfect um, for, for looking at Jupiter and Mars together. They're going to be about half a degree apart. And we had explained the whole uh, degree business. And then, um, yeah, they were very excited to, to find out that, like, in their hand, they had the device that, that would be great for, for showing these, uh, these planets to them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So we have uh, several occultations this month. For some reason, <laughs> for some reason, the spell check had changed that to occupations. Well, I'll go ahead and change that. <laughs> Did perfect. you see that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we do have multiple, uh, occupations here, Chris, so, you know, you're not completely inaccurate there. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think maybe my subconscious is spilling over because, uh, I'm doing this podcast today. I was, I was doing talks for the national park, uh, system that, you know, the past couple nights, uh, I was doing some sky tours. I've been working on my regular job. I've been, I've been teaching uh, astronomy classes at the university. So I feel like I have many occupations right now. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Very good. So, what is a, an occultation? Have you seen many occultations? Yeah, yeah, I've seen quite a few. Um, some planned and then some by chance. Sometimes I've just been out observing and you like, sometimes it just happens. And, and uh, what, what, what an occultation is, it's an event that occurs uh, when one object is hidden by another. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other object passes between us, the observer, and, and you know, the, the distant object in, in the universe. Um, and the term is often used in astronomy, but it can really refer to any situation in which an object in the foreground blocks uh, from view an object in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I used to observe um, with, with, uh, with a person and they were very tall. And uh, oftentimes they'd be walking around the telescopes um, and, and sometimes many of us would be set up like in the observatory, uh, the roll off roof observatory in the winter and, and it would get a little crowded in there. And as, as they walked around, they would inadvertently like block out, um, you know, the stars or whatever it was uh, people were looking at through their telescopes and, uh, and they became uh, sort of unofficially known as the great uh, occulter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I guess, I guess, it, uh, you know, by, by definition, that's not wrong. <laughs> that's not wrong. But I think, I think that gives a good example though, of, yeah. uh, of what we're talking about here, basically, uh, stuff getting, uh, in the way, um, of the observer and, uh, and an object, uh, in the background. Eh? Yeah. And, and what's kind of interesting about that is for some observations that can be, uh, very beneficial. Um, I was recently reading about, uh, Antares, uh, one of the brighter stars in the sky, and it's a double star, um, but its its companion star is um, quite close, and it's uh, much dimmer than Antares. So what uh, what some people suggest is when you can catch the moon occulting Antares, um, when when it comes out of occultation, uh, the the companion star kind of comes out first. So you got about five or six seconds where the moon's blocking the brightness of Antares, and then mm -hmm. you're able to see the companion star a lot easier. So hmm. in some cases it can actually uh, aid or assist in your ob uh, observations. Yeah. I've never seen the companion to uh, Antares. I, I had a friend who had a 10 inch telescope and he was forever trying to, to do it. And the, the best we could see is we kind of could see sort of on one side of Antares when a kind of like a greenish, 
um, bluish, you know, um, maybe, you know, a bit of a flash or like a bit sort of come and go with the seeing, but I, I can't say that that was an observation of, of the companion to Antares. Maybe we were getting some of the starlight mixed in there, but, uh, yeah, we, we didn't really see it as, as like a separate star or anything of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very challenging double to split. Um, you certainly need the right conditions, uh, you know, to, to work out in your favor and, and it's possible, but it, it is challenging. Yeah, and our first uh, occultation of the month is of uh, Ceres, and it's going to be uh, well. Ceres is a is a dwarf planet, and it's uh, you know one of the largest asteroids in uh, in our solar system, and uh, it is going to be for many places only 0.1 degrees south uh, of the moon, and it's an occultation for southern Canada and uh, much of the U.S. And uh, so Ceres is a dwarf planet, and it uh, is the first asteroid discovered. It was uh, found on January 1st, 1801, by uh, Giuseppe Piazzi at the Palermo Observatory in Sicily. And uh, originally classified as a planet, it was uh, reclassified eventually as an asteroid in the 1850s uh, because many dozens of other similar objects were, were found in similar orbits. So they just went, oh, this is a, a new type of uh, new, new classification uh, of object. And then in uh, 2006, um, uh, reclassified again as a dwarf planet. And uh, it's the only one um, that's always inside uh, Neptune's orbit. Um, it's 940 kilometers in diameter, and uh, it's the only uh, asteroid large enough uh, for its gravity to make it into a sphere. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I like to hunt them down. I, I can't remember the magnitude of this. I should have put it in here. But uh, Ceres is, is usually fairly uh, bright and visible in binoculars. And so on that night, what you could try doing is uh, just using some planetarium software, or just Googling uh, Ceres occultation times for your region. And then that will give you uh, the exact timing for when it will go behind. But what you want to do is you want to start, um, you know, maybe about like half an hour, 45 minutes beforehand so you can properly identify Ceres, um, you know, south of the moon. And then uh, you can watch it during that period of time. You'll, you'll get the sense that it's getting closer and closer. And, and when it gets fairly close to that time, like within five or six minutes, you just want to start staring at it because I've always found that it seems like an occultation is never going to happen. And you're looking and looking and looking. And then that last minute or so, it just seems, everything seems to accelerate. Like suddenly you can see everything moving, um, you know, really, really quickly. And then suddenly um, it's poof, it's just gone. So if you start to look right at that time, uh, you won't see it because it's going to disappear behind the moon. So you want to get out there, identify it, and then uh, watch it for a short period of time. Uh, and then you'll see it actually dip behind the moon. But when they disappear, that's what's really cool is you think it's going to uh, to kind of take some time and, and it's the reverse. It seems like nothing's happening for a long time. And then that last little bit, it there's a, seems like there's a, there's a lot of activity going on, eh? Yeah, that's great advice. And one of the reasons why I love uh, occultations is um, like when we look at, you know, galaxies and clusters and nebulas or, or just about anything in the sky, you, you really don't get any perception of motion. Um, but with occultations, uh, you do like, you do get to see this stuff moving. And I, you know, it fascinates me when, you know, like in this case, you know, you can see series in motion because, you know, if you just observe Ceres by itself, it is moving, but it's really hard to see it 
to see the motion because it's usually, you know, against a background of stars and it, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it really takes a, a period of time for you to notice the movement. But when you have something large like the moon there um, and it's about to be occulted, uh, you really, you know, you really see the motion and it's fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, series is just one of the first of our little series of occultations we're going to talk about this month. Oh. <laughs> oh. But first, uh, we'll talk about the Lunar X very quick. On June 6th, the Lunar X uh, will become visible. Um, yeah, so what's the Lunar X really quick, Shane, and, and how can people see it? Yeah, it's a clear obscure effect, which means uh, like a shadow play, essentially. So it's uh, near the Werner Crater on the moon. And uh, the Lunar X happens uh, every month. It's just sometimes it's, you know, not visible uh, during favorable observing times. Um, mm -hmm. But what it is, is the, the way the, the sun casts shadows and then also illuminates some higher points, um, right along the terminator of the moon, you see this very bright X. And mm -hmm. um, you, you definitely need optics for this. Um, uh, mm -hmm. I, last time you and I talked about the Lunar X, we speculated whether or not like my 12 by 36 binoculars would be able to see it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm going to try on the sixth, but certainly yep. a telescope will reveal it. Um, and I mentioned the Terminator and just a quick definition of that. When, we're, when we talk about the Terminator on the moon, it's the line of where the illuminated part of the moon turns into not illuminated. So it's kind of the bright part of the moon. And then you have a real dark line where the shadow begins. Uh, that's the, uh, the Terminator, essentially. Mm. Yeah, it's a high contrast area. So it's easy to pick out the features. Um, yeah. And so the lunar exit, and I should be putting this into the notes. Um, I'm going to start doing this because we had an email from a listener and uh, they kind of went through some uh, calculations and gymnastics to try to figure out if the lunar X would be visible on June 6th uh, from their location. I, I believe they're in uh, California or somewhere. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I decided that at that point, Oh, I should be putting in uh, when and where it's visible. So um this uh, June 6th event is going to be visible for all of North America. And I think it's uh, something like 7 p.m. Eastern time. But I, I got to start getting that in there a little bit better. Yeah. Um, typically on cloudy nights, somebody will post annually uh, the dates and the times in UTC for the Lunar X. Mm -hmm. um, so you can also go there and then just do the math based on your location uh, versus the UTC and uh, determine whether or not it's visible for you. Yeah. And in, uh, and I was going to recommend that individual to uh, pick up a copy of the RASC observers calendar, which uh, I'm the editor of um, because we also have the uh, days and times, uh, et cetera, for this and, and many of the events we talk about. Uh, however, our third pressing is sold out. I think, uh, you know, we've sold quite a few copies this year and I, I went to find it and uh yeah, no such luck. Uh, we're, we're all sold out, unfortunately. But uh, in future years, uh, that's something uh, people may wish to keep in mind. Yeah, for sure. And you can keep listening because usually we give away a copy or two every year. At, yeah, uh, around, that's right. Yeah, around Christmas time. So, yeah. Um, on June 6th, we also have 29 Amphitrite, um, saying that properly, which is uh, another uh, asteroid. It's going to be at opposition and it's going to be magnitude 9.5, so visible in. Uh, in you know, little binoculars, uh, decent binoculars and small telescopes. 
Um, and then uh, this asteroid is about 200 kilometers in diameter, making it about the fifth largest asteroid discovered in, uh, in March of uh, 1854 by Albert Marth. Um, he was using a private uh, villa observatory in Regent's Park in London. Um, and it was Mars' only asteroid discovery. It's named after George Bishop, the owner of the observatory, who named it Amphitrite, uh, a sea goddess in Greek mythology. Hmm, interesting. Wonder, I wonder if any, any of it, we, I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK. It would be super cool to, to find out if anybody's been there to, uh, to Regent's Park to observe. I feel like, like now that I'm reading this, I feel like somebody told me that, that they had observed there or gone there or, we're done some observing there. Now that I'm like reading this, I'm like, hang on, wait a second. Um, yeah, that would, that'd be really cool. If someone can just uh, write and verify that we'd appreciate it. Um, June 7th, we have the lunar straight wall uh, at the first quarter moon. So uh, lunar straight wall, Shane, that's like a, an escarpment on the moon, isn't it? Or something to that effect? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Some kind of escarpment or Ridge. I think it's uh, in the area of uh, what is it? Rupus rect. Tours. I can't remember the name of the, yeah. the region, but it, it's uh, another clear, obscure effect. Um, at the right time of the month, this escarpment uh, through optics, it just looks like a, a like a pretty long black line that's quite straight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool. Like this is another one that I you know if you've never seen it, definitely uh, try to observe it on the seventh if it's clear. Um, because it's uh, pretty cool. Like most stuff on the moon is so jagged and uneven to see mm-hmm. something so straight. It just kind of wows you. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and oftentimes uh, I've just run across it just having me observing first quarter moon and uh, yeah, you can see it there. It's just this uh, perfectly straight line. looks like someone just has sort of drawn a pencil uh, on the moon. So if you want to sketch it, it's a really easy sketch too. Yeah. If you can draw a straight line, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, challenging for me though. I know. Me All right. Too. Yes. Uh, yeah. 41 Daphne is another asteroid. It's at opposition on June 7th and it's going to be magnitude 9.8. Uh, Daphne is, uh, is a large asteroid in the asteroid belt and it's uh, 174 kilometers in diameter discovered by Goldschmidt on May 22nd, 1856, but it was lost for six years afterwards. It's named Daphne, uh, which is the, the nymph in Greek mythology, uh, who was turned into a laurel tree. Oh, I'm not sure. What is a laurel tree? And why uh, would why would one want or not want to be turned into one? I, I was hoping you would enlighten us, but if uh, that's not part of the the show notes, then I guess we carry on. <laughs> yeah, I don't have it. I guess we'll have to leave this one. Oh my, you are just yeah. you're on fire oh, yeah. today. <laughs> I know. I slept well outside. Very good. All right, June eleventh, Venus is going to be one point six degrees south of Uranus. Oh. That's quite close. Um, it, it is, but I think the sky is really bright. So yeah, because we're, yeah, yeah. we're getting really, really close to the solstice there. So uh, I'm not sure, you know, and, and I'm putting this in. I don't think we would be able to see this from here, Shane. I think our sky is just going to be way too bright in the morning of, of June 11th. But I know we have folks uh, all over the world in the Southern Hemisphere and different places in the States and uh, other places that, uh, that this may be visible. So if you are able to see that, Probably a small telescope. I think that would be the best bet. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely would want a telescope, I think, to uh, try to pull in Uranus. So yeah. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. (laughs) I I think not a big telescope, though, because you're going to be looking through some atmosphere. And Mm -hmm. I think if if I was to pick a telescope, probably like a four-inch refractor. There you go. 
something of that nature. June 14th, we have the full moon. I, f- I wish we had like the boo button. Boo, boo. You know, like <laughs> you're, you're going to get some hate mail from some, <laughs> some lunar observers uh, and you deserve it. <laughs> we need to do like one of those debaters thing, you know, the full versus the new moon, you know, we could have, yeah, we could have yeah. three sides to it. And those that are in favor of the quarters, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Anyway, yeah, the, great, the great debate is coming to, uh, to a podcast near you. Um, on the 14th of June, though, for those that, that, that aren't into full moon as gazing. And I should say this, I've done a study. I'm like one of the few people who've done a study and I have, I sketched the full moon every month for a year once and, uh, and detailed out what, what could be seen and not seen. And I made comparisons between, um, uh, uh, you know, aphelion and, uh, you know, what a supermoon looks like compared to, um, what it looks like when it's, you know, at its far end of the orbit and uh, could, could not really see much of a difference. I might have detected like a like a minor difference. So I, I have done a lot of full moon observing. So I'm I'm really just kidding there. All right, uh, June 14th, <laughs> Mercury is going to be at greatest elongation west. So that means it's visible in the morning sky. I like how I like how the astronomers have come up with the most confusing way to talk about when and where Mercury or Venus um, or like the inferior planets are going to be visible. And why do they call them inferior planets anyway? Just because they're on the inside of our orbit doesn't make them inferior to the other planets. I don't, I, you know, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a strange, strange title, but uh, yeah, we'll go with it. Orbital oddities. Yeah. So when Mercury is at its greatest elongation West, that means it's visible in the East in the morning sky. And they wonder why people get so confused about astronomy. Like, do you know how long it took me to figure that? Like, I, like this is not <laughs> something that really rolls off the tongue. So go look for Mercury in the morning sky on June 14th and don't look anywhere near the sun because you'll go blind. So you need to be in a pretty good spot. And I think here where we are at 50 degrees north, um, it, it's going to be too bright, too risky. So you want to be uh, somewhere uh, much further south, uh, you know, maybe towards the equator or something like that. June 18th, uh, Saturn is going to be four degrees north of the moon in the morning sky. So that's going to be uh, much easier to see. I think that one's going to be visible here, even though we're close to the solstice, um, the moon and Saturn paired together at four degrees means that you can see it in the same binocular field of view. So I think that's a sight worth seeing. Oh yeah, for sure. Four degrees is is quite close. And yep. like you said, most binoculars will, will show a four degree field of view. And um, depending on the size of your binoculars, um, you may be able to distinguish a little bit of the rings, but most likely Saturn will just look like uh, kind of a bright oval. Yeah. And if you have a really small wide field telescope, I know there's lots of folks uh, like you and I, Shane, who have 50, 60, 70 millimeter telescopes, 80 millimeter telescopes, mm-hmm. um, up to about 80 millimeter. If you have one of those short tubes, you can get uh, about four degree uh, fields of view with uh, low power wide field eyepieces now. And uh, yeah, you might be able to see like the rings of Saturn and uh, and the craters on the moon in the same field at the same time, which uh, which I've seen before. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot to take in, you know, there's so much to see with, uh, both the moon and Saturn visible. It's quite a, quite an observation. June 19th, Vesta is going to be 0.7 degrees North of the moon. And it's an occultation for South America and Antarctica. Whoa. So I, I don't know that we, I don't think we have any observers in Antarctica. We may because they uh, people do go down there that are just regular folks, and uh, you know you can get internet down there. Might be listening to the podcast. That would be cool. Uh, but I do know that we have observers in uh, South America. Now I'm not sure exactly where, but you know I think uh, I think the line is actually favorable for for much of uh, South America. Perhaps like Chile, Argentina might be favored. 
Um, but take take a look, and uh, yeah, I would love to hear from any of our observers in uh, in, in uh, South America uh, countries uh, and and hear what it's like. You know, I've always wanted to go to South America. That's like probably. Um, the top place that I want to visit now, like I've been to a lot of the other places I sort of always thought I would go to see, but I, I feel like South America would just be uh, just fantastic and a great place to go see the Southern sky. And we have the very fortunate advantage of, of being uh, on or very near the same time zone, I think as uh, many of the South American countries. So I wouldn't have to deal with jet lag and I really hate jet lag. So be good. Yeah. Win, 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 win. When, when, when I was observing with some folks from Mexico over the weekend, it's pretty, pretty fun just to make some comparisons. One of them actually came up and went observing in Saskatchewan in December. <laughs> and I was, I was pretty impressed with that. I was pretty impressed with that. So yeah, to, to come from a, uh, a warm country like Mexico and, uh, and come to Canada. Um, I, yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a rare flight. Usually people in Canada are flying to Mexico, um, you know, during, uh, the Christmas break. Uh, but, but this person came up to visit somebody and they, they went down and went observing They went stargazing down in, uh, in the grasslands national park. My, I tip my hat to that individual. Let me tell you, I was, uh, wow. I, I, you know, I, I don't, that was a first, I'd never heard of anybody who come from the South, uh, to the North in the, in the depths of very, very cold weather. And they, they said it was, I think they told me it was like minus 40 when they went, <laughs> like, I was, I was impressed. I was impressed. I don't think uh, I would have done it, but they did. And they said it was spectacular. And they told me all about their observations of the Northern lights. And they, uh, they, they were really impressed. They said that the Milky way in the winter there was um, as bright as the summer Milky way, um, you know, uh, it would typically appear from most locations. So uh, yeah, pretty cool, eh? Yeah, that is very cool. Yeah, uh, Vesta is a is a minor planet. So we're talking about the uh, occultation uh, of Vesta by the Moon um, on June nineteenth. So Vesta is one of the largest minor planets in the asteroid belt. Has a diameter of five hundred and twenty five kilometers. It was discovered by Matthias Olbers on the 29th of March in eighteen oh seven. Vesta is the goddess of home and hearth in Roman mythology. So wasn't that like one of the didn't uh, didn't uh, in, in Christmas Vacation Griswold? Didn't he talk about home and hearth a bit? Anyway, <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe. All right, Vesta is thought to be the second largest asteroid, both in mass and by volume, just after the dwarf dwarf planet Ceres. So uh, we actually have observations and occultations of both Vesta and Ceres in the same month. I wonder how rare that seems. Very rare to me. That seems like a rare event to have both uh, Vesta and Ceres. Uh, being occulted by the moon in the same month. Maybe it's not that rare, but uh, if you're in, uh, maybe if, if somebody is in Mexico or something like that, they would be able to, uh, they would be able to, to make that observation. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how rare that is, but uh, regardless, it's a great opportunity this month to see, uh, you know, uh, both, both Vesta and Ceres. Um, so very cool. Yeah. And uh, let's see, June 21st is the last quarter moon. It's also the summer solstice. And uh, on June 21st in the morning, Jupiter is going to be three degrees north of the moon. Although from here, Shane, I mean, it is very bright all night on June 21st. We get a little bit of, we get some darkness, what, like three hours where it's dark enough to see stars. But uh, boy, it's, uh, that, that's a pretty limited, uh, limited amount of time, maybe from yeah. like... Midnight to uh, 3 a.m. or something, we see some stars, but it wouldn't yeah. be dark. No, and it's not dark, dark during that time. Um, you know, around June 21st, um, because our, you know, like we're, we're in 
uh, or we're surrounded by prairie land, so it's very flat. Um, so if you if you have a perfect view to the north during that time, often the horizon doesn't even really darken. You can kind of watch the moon, or sorry, uh, watch the sun kind of make its way to the eastern sky, even though it's you know set. But you can see a little bit of the glow to the north as it moves moves. Uh, well, it's not moving, but we're moving. Yeah, it looks like it's moving. I read it does. You. Yeah. yeah, very good. June 22nd, Mars is 0.9 degrees north of the moon. And guess what? Another occultation, this time for the South Pacific. Boy, if someone had a lot of air miles to burn, they could probably set the record for seeing the most occultations in a month, I think. And then on the 26th of June, we have Venus three degrees south of the moon. And then, uh, sorry, I missed one. On the 24th, we have um, Uranus. 0.05 degrees north of the moon, which is an occultation from Hawaii to Australia. So uh, a big zone there. So we have several occultations this month. And then, like I said, on June uh, 26th, there's not an occultation, but Venus and the moon are going to be paired three degrees apart. June 27th, Mercury is going to be four degrees south of the moon. Again, these are going to be tough observations getting really close to the sun. So people need to be careful if they want to take a look at that. Um, if you are, uh, you know, not experienced at looking at things, um, you know, close to the horizon, you know, when the sun might be coming up, uh, yeah, that's something you can sort of uh, learn to do, but please learn to do it uh, safely. And then on June 29th, we have the new moon. And then I wish we had like the applause button to hit. (laughs) (laughs) Get away moon. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, I read that, uh, O3 pan stars has disintegrated. Did you read this as well? So no yeah, more yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if we press the rewind button to the last time we did one of these episodes, would, did you would you the, yeah, there we go. Oh, that's okay? our rewind. That's our rewind. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you fell off your chair. I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> falling off my chair. I probably, yeah. It's like I fell off my chair, but it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, we we were hoping that uh, comet uh, O3 Panstars uh, would turn into a very bright comet. Um, but you know, some of the uh, some of the comet watchers in the amateur astronomy community uh, were not uh, as confident that this would turn into a big comet. That uh, you know, the fear was that once it got close to the sun it would be pulled apart and, you know, not turn into much of anything in terms of, uh, uh, being a, you know, an object of interest. And that's pretty much what happened. It, it got too close to the sun and then the sun pulled it apart essentially. And there was not much to see. K2 pan stars though. K2 pan stars might have some visibility. It says it's going to be magnitude 9.7 in Ophiuchus. Okay. So that one yeah, is, is, is a possibility. I kind of wish I, I was actually looking in Northern Ophiuchus from a dark site last night. I just am seeing this right now. It's, this has just been uh, updated here. And then um, we have 45P Comet uh, Honda Mercos Pajuskova. Um, that'll be visible in a, in a six inch telescope uh, at magnitude 9.1. And then um, C2021 E3 bracket ztf bracket uh is a southern hemisphere comet which is magnitude 9.7 right now um and let's see so oh honda that's in gemini which is still kind of high in the uh in the western sky these nights we, we were looking at castor and pollux the other night 
Um, not really visible from here, but if you were at the equator or maybe in the Southern hemisphere, you might be able to hunt down 45 P, uh, and then, um, E3 ZTF is, uh, up in Karina. So that's, uh, only visible in the Southern hemisphere. You'd want to be fairly far, uh, South, but every, everything else is, uh, is going to be a magnitude 10 or, or fainter. Uh, it looks like, but yeah, uh, I was surprised just looking at this, just while we we're chatting that, uh, there wasn't, there was an update and, uh, yeah, some of these comments have sort of poked up a little bit in, uh, hmm. in brightness, which is kind of exciting to see. Yeah. Comments are always exciting. Um, you know, even ones that aren't uh, naked eye comets uh, can be quite intriguing through a telescope. Um, some have tails, uh, some are just like a diffuse kind of round ball. Uh, the sizes vary, the brightness is very, um, the, the neat thing with comets is they're just, they're never the same thing twice, um, even yeah. if it's the same comet. So they're always fun to observe. Yeah. And the webpage we use for this is just a publicly, publicly accessible webpage called the uh, uh, cometchasing.skyhound.com and uh, yeah they do updates as observations that come in and they make finer charts and uh, all kinds of great stuff uh, makes it really easy to follow they they typically put the brighter comets up top and the fainter comets down below and uh, yeah must get updated uh, I think two three times a month or maybe weekly um, so yeah people can go there if they want to find out all the latest and greatest about comets yeah for sure noctilucent clouds what are noctilucent cloud chain and why should we care well, they're uh, quite a quite a bizarre thing, really. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's the simplest definition is the sun has set. It is dark outside, but you can see illuminated clouds in the north, and mm -hmm. uh, they're typically closer to the horizon. Although we've seen them quite high up. Yeah, we have. Last yeah. year was there was that yeah. event. It was spectacular. They were right up overhead. Yeah, it was incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible. And and what it is, is it's a very high uh, uh, altitude clouds that catch uh, some of the sun, even though the sun is set um, because of the angle of the sun and these clouds, these clouds become illuminated at night. And it's a very... It's a very interesting thing to see. They're mm -hmm. unpredictable. You never know when they're going to happen. And uh, the the one thing though is is that there is kind of a season for noctilucents, and it's June essentially. A little bit of May going into June is when uh, I think most or maybe all of the noctilucent uh, observations have been recorded. So mm -hmm. uh, quite excited for it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I, I spotted something knocked loose on last name, but it wasn't cloud. I dropped a, an N95 mask out of my pocket when I was sitting up at Mike's campsite and it was glowing. I'm not sure. Why is my N95 mask glowing? I think I'm going to stop wearing that brand. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, we're uh, just about ready to wrap up here, Shane. Uh, I have some targets I want to look at the summer. Didn't know if you have anything else to add to uh, the objects to observe in the June 22 night sky, or if uh, you have anything on your target list you uh, wish to share. Um, so like I'm going to make a, a stronger effort to observe the moon in all phases uh, when it's visible. Um, I'm hoping for some noctilucent clouds this month and um, I'll continue on with some double stars uh, focused mostly on the RASC uh, double star list. 
Yeah. And then um, there's a pile of objects that uh, uh, Stephen James O'Meara has identified in his Hidden Treasures book, mm. uh, which I want to continue observing. I observed a, a few of them in Grasslands uh, this past week. Good. And uh, I think we'll talk about that stuff more so on the next episode. But um, and what, what about you? I think you've got quite a bit that you'd like to take a look at. Yeah, quite a few things. Uh, actually, I think we're going to have uh, Blake uh, Nankar on uh, to talk about the uh, the double star list that you're working on. Uh, he's the author of the list, and uh, and I I've, I have not really made any contributions to it at all. But I I encourage Blake to do it because he's a double star observer. I am not, and he was kicking around the idea of of doing a double star list um, uh, years ago, and I was like, yes, absolutely, do that, and you know, really kind of. Uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, pushed him along, and uh, and yeah, he was able to put one out, and uh, and it's been very popular. It's really exciting, and uh, you know, I'm eager to have him on. I think we're doing that the week of June 12th. So if anybody's interested in double stars, uh, tune in uh, towards the middle of the month, and and we'll get that episode up. Yeah, I'm excited for that conversation. Yeah, I have lots of tarts that I I do want to look at. None of them are double stars, unfortunately. Uh, I have nothing against double stars, but. Uh, I guess they're twice the fun and, and I'm just not that uh, fun. Um, I've, you know, trying to get my new comic catcher up and running and uh, yeah, I kind of was poking around a bit with that. Uh, I'd like to take a look at the North, Meg- ne- the, the North American Nebula with it. Um, I see 1396 uh, M24. I'd like to look at some dark lanes, the summer beehive. I'd like to look at uh, the Coma Berenices, Milan 111 open cluster and M31 list goes on and on, on. Just want to kind of revisit some of the big bright uh, objects in, in the summer sky with, uh, with that thing. I'm, I'm so excited just to have uh, uh, this really dedicated wide field cheap telescope from the 1980s. That's a beautiful orange peel orange. So uh, yeah, it's very exciting to, to get that up and running. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, all of those objects are, are quite large. So yeah. that's the ideal telescope for it. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Might need some help aligning it and uh, yeah. Look forward to uh, kind of tweaking it and working on it. Should be uh, should be a good summer. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, anything else to add, Shane? Uh, yeah. Just one thing. Go ahead. Uh, we went through an awful lot of objects here and measurements and, and all kinds of stuff. So if you were you know, unable to write it down, or you want to reference this later, we will post it to our website, uh, actualastronomy.com. So check it out there. We'll have, we, we don't always post the show notes, but for this episode, we, we always try to, so uh, it will be up there. Yeah. And we also, when we put it out on the 365 days of astronomy, um, I do send through the transcript, although these, the translate option that we use, um, sometimes the, the words are a bit, uh, muddied up, uh, and if, as well, if anybody's wondering anything, uh, particular, uh, or you want to send us your observations, you can send us emails to actualastronomy@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And we're always happy to kind of fill you in and, and maybe round out some of the information that we've provided in the show and uh, appreciate any feedback the listeners, uh, might be able to, to provide to, uh, to allow us to make for better episodes in the future. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, anything else to add, Jane? No, that's it. Perfect. Well, thanks, uh, Shane, for joining me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.